we have a small amount of time to be together, so I'll, I'll refer straight away to my talking points. Uh, my very dear friend, Sarvabhoma Prabhu, whom I guess most of you know, or all of you may know, uh, he invited me to take part in this uh, Simply Wonderful Fridays, and for that I'm very thankful. And uh, he suggested the topic, One God, Many Names. And I'm delighted to talk about that subject matter. Uh, it's been a central realization in my life that uh, truth is universal and um, that God is the ultimate truth of life, but that uh, there are so many different conceptions of God, so many different ways of addressing God, so many different ways of worshiping God. And that may sometimes confuse people. Uh, many gods, uh, if there are many gods, is one superior, supreme, like that. These questions uh, vex people. Uh, they inspire people to uh, search for answers, and they give very rich and meaningful answers to people. So, one God, many names. Um, I worked as a hospice chaplain. It was very rewarding work. Uh, the thing that I'm most interested in, as I was just explaining, is truth and the ultimate truth of God. And at the same time, in general, people are not so eager to talk about God and ultimate truth. They're more interested in the meal that they're planning to have after some time or some uh, maybe loftier objective, the home they want to buy, the career they want to secure, the partner they want to be with, relationships that they're trying to develop. But at the time of great illness or when death is imminent, people are very, very interested to talk about the most meaningful thing in life. And so I had great opportunity to indulge the thing that I am most interested in uh, to the benefit, not just of myself, because I was delighted to speak about what I'm most interested in, but the people who were um, really wanting to know. What is my destination? Um, I'll be separated from my body, my associates, my possessions, the world that I know. What awaits me beyond that? And even though America, where I worked, I worked in Wichita, Kansas as a, as a hospice chaplain, you know, Americans uh, purport to be religious people. They um, have church affiliations or temple affiliations, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, many people are really in the dark about what is the ultimate destination? Who am I? Who is God? Of course, in, in hospice care, um, Hospice chaplains are trained and expected to honor the fact that people are at all different 
stages of development in their life of all different persuasions and uh, conceptions of what is um, ultimate reality and to honor that, to uh, not impose, but to uh, reciprocate with people. And I was very happy to do that um, because the first thing that I have been led by my experience to believe and also coached to have faith in by my mentors is that the first way in which we connect with a person is to make friendship with that person. If we have something to share with somebody, if we can't honor the person and let them know that we value them as a person, there's going to be little susceptibility to whatever we want to give because people are reluctant to expose themselves to the slings and arrows of insult, um, ridicule, uh, disrespect. So you want to open the, the doorway by making friendship. I would always ask people to tell me about your spirituality and people would do that. And from there we would take it. I could as easily and meaningfully <clears throat> talk to somebody who told me they don't believe in God as I could talk with somebody who was a dogmatic follower of a particular religion or somebody who was self-identifying themselves as spiritual and inclusivistic. So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about a couple of the things that um, guide me have helped form the way I interact with people. The first is uh, from the Rig Veda. The Rig Veda is one of the oldest Vedic literatures. And it has um, a, a saying, it's very central to Far Eastern or Indian thought. Truth is one, sages call it by various names. So again, I was developing the idea that God is the ultimate truth. Truth being one, God is the ultimate truth, then God is one. And yet sages, people of wisdom, call it by various names. How strange is that? I don't think it's strange at all. I made a list of uh, names uh, that people around the world would know. Vasar, Ishka, Agua, Pani, Jal, O, Van, Maybe you recognize one. Uh, probably a lot of people recognize agua. Uh, we say water. But water is called vasa, ishka, agua, pani, jal, o, van, etc., etc. All these different names refer to the same substance, H2O. In the same way, there are so many names for God. But they all refer to the same ultimate being, the same ultimate reality. Not everybody understands that, but again, if we tie the knot of friendship by respecting the person, by valuing the person, by hearing the person, by seeing the person, by letting the person speak, then there's a conduit formed. Okay, the second uh, reference I want to call to mind is from the Bhagavad Purana. 
uh, Bhagavad Purana is uh, one of the three major uh, scriptures that Vaishnavas uh, refer to and base their lives on. Bhagavad Gita is the first. Srimad Bhagavatam or Bhagavad Purana is the second. Chaitanya Charitamrita is the third. In the Bhagavatam, the Bhagavad says that learned transcendentalists who know the absolute truth call this non-dual substance Brahman, Paramatma, or Bhagavan. So these are different phases of the one truth, and they begin to explain why it is that people sometimes think that I'm worshiping the real God, but you're worshiping something fictitious or illusory. But that is because God appears in different manifestations and those who are wise understand that they're simply different phases of the same one truth that's the meaning here that the absolute truth is non-dual it's unitary it's one but it appears in different phases brahman is kind of uh you know, like Star Wars, I guess most of us are familiar with Star Wars. I guess it's ancient history now. But, uh, you know, Luke, may the force be with you. You know, the force in Star Wars represented God, you know, the ultimate truth. But it was impersonal. There was no he or she. It was more of an it. <laughs> and it was uh, amenable or or... It could be managed by the persons who wielded it or related to it. That's the impersonal conception. Ubiquitous, unformed, impersonal. And then mm, the next phase, Paramatma is localized. God as sitting in the heart of every living being, in the atoms, in between the atoms, the same uh, supreme being, but personally present in every, every atmosphere of reality, Paramatma. And then Bhagavan is the personality of Godhead, the supreme person. So um, God is one, many names, and the names relate to phases of God's existence. Think about what we were saying before, vasa, ishka, agua, pani, jal, o, van, water. Water is sometimes a liquid. That's how we think of water. That's its nature, its dharma, to be liquid. But under certain conditions, water becomes solid. We call that ice. But when the temperature is sufficiently cold, H2O manifests as a solid. And when conditions are right, H2O manifests as a mist, a vapor. So H2O is always H2O, but it can be solid, it can be liquid, or it can be gaseous. So God is one, but God can be apprehended uh, in his impersonal feature, the effulgence, the light coming from him, his impersonal reign of all that is. Or he can be located in the heart, um, in all things around us, because he is omnipresent. 
or we can do the spiritual work or we can have the good fortune without necessarily doing spiritual work to have an encounter with the person, God, the Supreme Being. So how am I doing with time, uh, Winston? I want to uh, be sure to leave sufficient time for people to uh, interact with me. We're doing great, uh, about halfway through, uh, about 20 oh. minutes. Okay, good, good. Okay, so we see that God is one, non-dual, that God has many names, but the names are just different vernaculars for expressing the same truth. And that that one truth appears in different phases, and that is not foreign to us, just as we all are familiar, I think all of us, <laughs> ice, water, and vapor. We should be familiar with the fact that God manifests in different ways. In the Bible, God appears uh, as a white dove after the flood, as a pillar of fire, a pillar of smoke uh, to Moses as he's leading the people out of Israel. He appears as a, a warrior leader uh, on a battlefield brandishing a sword, also in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, uh, the devotion of many Christians is that he appears as Jesus. And uh, Vaishnavas don't dispute that. We uh, hold that Jesus is a Shaktivesh avatar, an appearance, a descent of the divinity. Um, it's a complex uh, idea, but that's not what we're addressing now. But I'll just say we accept that. Um, but now there's more that I wanted to get to, which is uh, part of why I self-identify as a Vaishnava. I'm wearing the tilak and I'm, uh, you know, in, in the holy city of Vrindavan because I'm very attracted to the Vaishnava culture. It's where I feel at home. And I don't insist that everybody feel at home where they don't because that's not real i mean really people uh, have affinities for different things i have an affinity for this krishna consciousness that's very natural to me and in krishna consciousness not only do we hold that god is one with many names and that god appears in different phases but something that was particularly and remains particularly gratifying to me is discussed in the chaitanya charitamrita I mentioned that as like the, um, that's the postgraduate scripture for Vaishnavas. The highest revelations are contained there. And um, one of those is in the very beginning of the Chaitanya Charitamrita, where Krishnadas Kaviraj, the author, he explains, there's this verse, the loving affairs of Sri Radha and Krishna are transcendental manifestations of the Lord's internal pleasure-giving potency. Now here's the sort of defining sentence here. Although Radha and Krishna are one in their identity, previously they separated themselves. Now is this, this one is God. Their identity is the identity of God. That's who Radha and Krishna are. And they are one in their identity. But then the author is disclosing to us a secret that this non-dual supreme aspect of the ultimate reality, God, has two 
moities, we can say. Moiety means like um, a part or an aspect, a feminine aspect and a masculine aspect. So let me read the whole phrase here. The loving affairs of Sri Radha, the feminine aspect, and Krishna, the masculine aspect, are transcendental manifestations of the Lord's internal pleasure-giving potency. Although Radha and Krishna are one in their identity, previously they separated themselves. Now, these two transcendental identities have again united. In the form of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, I bow down to him who has manifested himself with the sentiment and complexion of Srimati Radharani, although he is Krishna himself. And so this, this is um, something that is quite topical. Uh, we see that <clears throat> in the world as we know it, uh, for centuries now, there has been uh, part of the public discourse that people should be treated or living entities should be treated with justice and uh, we see that there are many groups of people who are persecuted, oppressed, exploited, harmed, and that's a great injustice, and it bothers people. And in the modern discourse, there are so many efforts to undo that injustice and to alleviate the injuries and cease the harm. So this idea of feminine divinity is very central to Vaishnav culture. Vaishnavas um, adore Radha and Krishna. And if you go into a Vaishnav worship place, there is the deity form in painting or sculpture. We see a beautiful female form and a beautiful male form, and they're a couple. And they are one, and yet they're two. It's a complexity. It's um, a refinement. It's um, additional rich knowledge. So, um, I think it might be it might be uh, meaningful to uh, share one or two experiences that I have had uh, in my hospice care um, and I think this is the value of being conversant with all religions and recognizing that they all are centered on adoring worshiping uh, relating to and giving pleasure to the supreme one uh, but one of the people that I worked with was a woman a retired school teacher and uh, her husband was dying in the hospice. And when I got to meet the couple, I discovered straight away that he didn't need a chaplain. He was very happy to have palliative care. He wasn't in any more pain. He wasn't in any anxiety. He wasn't afraid that after death he would suffer in hell or something like that. He just was feeling good and happy to be comfortable that his wife was with him and he didn't need my services. So I would talk briefly with the wife and I noticed that she loved to read. And so 
maybe a week, week and a half passed and I would visit daily. I was in like the ICU of the hospice where I worked, where people came to die. And uh, so I would see people on a daily basis. There were 16 beds. I'd make 16 visits in a good day and check in on everybody and see if anybody needed special help. So in the process of checking with this uh, couple, <clears throat> at one point, uh, I asked the woman again, was there anything that I could do for her? And she said, well, actually, chaplain, there is one thing that's always bothered me. And she explained that um, her father and mother were good people and she loved them and they loved her but that her dad had a really bad temper. And that uh, when he became intemperate, he was very hurtful and uh, it was a real problem. But he was a good man and she loved him and he loved his wife and she loved him and everything was going along, I guess, you know, in that family's normal way. But then there was an altercation and the man became extremely irate and he killed his wife and then he took his own life. And this happened when the woman was a child. She was um, not yet um, a teenager, she was a child. I don't remember what age she was, but she was quite young. And of course she was devastated. And she said, they were a religious family, they believed in uh, God and they believed in Christ and they believed in heaven and hell and she always wondered what happened to my father because he was a good man he loved my mother and he took care of her and she loved him but when he became overtaken by this anger and lost it then he was capable of doing these reprehensible and abominable things so she wondered she said I'm sure my mother went to heaven but I don't know about my father I've always wondered. And at this point, she was emotional. You know, every time I had visited, she's always in a book reading and uh, calm, cool, collected. Now, some emotionality was visible. This trauma had been haunting her. And if she was seven or nine when the trauma occurred, four score years may have been added, you know, or at least three score years. You know, she was in her 60s, 70s, maybe 80s. I don't remember. Now, I assessed, here's a woman of Christian faith. I can't tell her that uh, the Bhagavad Gita says, and Krishna says, and therefore you should believe that uh, reincarnation is... Uh, the standard that the soul takes birth maybe and you can't do that to somebody person you, know, you just can't do that it's 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 asking too much it's not sensitive it's not building that friendship that i talked about so i said to her well look i know you you like to read and i have a book in my library that i think would be helpful to you i'd like to lend it to you it's very easy to read it's scholarly and it's got a lot of information. And there's an answer to your question embedded in it. But before we talk about that answer, I'd like to share the book with you. Are you open to that idea? She said, yes. I gave her a copy of The Reincarnation Controversy by, by Satyaraj, uh, Stephen Rosen. 
And in that book, he looks at the idea of reincarnation in Judaism, in Christianity, in Islam, in Buddhism, in Vaishnavism. He does a survey and he gives scholarly footnotes in the book so that he substantiates it. I'm not making this up. Early Christians believed in reincarnation. Early Jews believed in reincarnation. Esoteric Islam believes in reincarnation. Buddhism, Vaishnavism, it's a thread that goes through all the great religious traditions. And it supports the idea that there is no eternal hell. That if somebody does reprehensible and horrible deeds, they may go to hell, but not forever. That would be a maligning of and a misrepresentation and a misunderstanding of the character of God who loves the soul unconditionally. I wanted to have that discussion with her, but I thought, let me prepare her and not shock her or put her off so that she can't get the hope inspired in that message. Well, she read the book. Maybe it took her four or five days. I don't really remember. But when we did have the conversation, she was able to say, I feel so happy. Something that had weighed me down for decades has been lifted. I am convinced that although my father did a heinous act and a great sin and may have had to suffer in the afterlife to correct or to help him become a better agent and, and lover of God, he's not in eternal hell, which she had feared. So this is, this is what happens when we have interest in other religious perspectives, have respect for peoples, uh, where they land in their religious journey, where they land in their spiritual journey, even if that's atheism, which we think is abhorrent. We should find the truth in their position. There is some truth in practically every position. There's something we can work with. There's some germ of reality we can work with. So I, I want to open it up for dialogue. I think that, uh, I hope I've left enough time for that. Uh, Ladini? Yes. Can you retell that story that Rodnath Marsh tells about the dog and the uh, the gentleman that has his dog will recognize him in any condition? Oh, yeah. Radhanath Swami, um, His Holiness Radhanath Swami is a spiritual master in ISKCON, uh, author, uh, very gifted speaker and musician, and um, very experienced Vaishnava. As a young man, he went to India as a pilgrim and he was searching for his spiritual master, his spiritual path. And in that process, he made friendship with um, an Indian man uh, who was a Ram Bhakta, uh, devoted to Ramchandra. And he noted that his friend, the Ram Bhakta, had a best friend, another Indian man who was a Muslim. <laughs> and if you know anything about modern history, uh, 
when I say modern, the last several hundred years, uh, but particularly the last couple of hundred years, there's been a lot of tension between Muslims and Hindus in India. It goes on still. And uh, so Radhanath Swami noted this very strong friendship between two men from camps that are often in conflict. And he, he, he asked um, his friend one day, how is it that in India, where there's so much tension and conflict between Muslims and Hindus, how is it that your best friend is a Muslim and his best friend is you, a Hindu? How, how does that work? How, how, how can you explain that? So Radhanaswamy tells that his friend gave him an answer that was so memorable, he repeats it often. He says, um, if a man has a dog, the dog will always recognize that man, whether the man is dressed in a tuxedo, whether he's in casual clothes, jeans and t-shirt, or a bathing suit, or if he's just stepped out of the shower and he's not wearing anything, it doesn't matter. However the man appears before the dog, the dog will recognize his master. And then Radhanaswamy's friend concluded the anecdote by saying, if we are unable to recognize the Supreme Lord when he appears in different scriptures, in different forms, under different names, then we have so much to learn from a dog. So, yeah, it's consistent with our theme that um, God is one, but God appears under different names, um, in different forms, and engages in different activities that are appropriate for his audience, for those who are relating to him in a particular tradition, a particular time, place, and circumstance. Jenya asks, did your hospice experience reinforce your slash our attachment and need for human connection. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I felt valued because I knew that I was bringing to people what they needed. Like if somebody was very thirsty and you have a cup of good water for them or the beverage that will help them and you give it to them, you feel good. You know, it's just natural. It's so my training, my spiritual practices, um, all the instruction that I've received from my spiritual masters, they're all meant to serve other people. So the theater of hospice was an arena in which I could serve other people in meaningful ways. And just like that woman, you know, I was, I was a chaplain for almost a decade. So I worked with hundreds and hundreds of people, actually. And sometimes, you know, the dying person would have family members there in the 20s, you know, 20 people or, or 15 people. And I'd get to meet these people and interact with them and give them from what had been given to me answers that gave them peace and happiness and relief and hope.
Of course, the people used to say to me, isn't it morbid? How, how can you stand to work? You know, <laughs> I mean, in, in uh, my writing about hospice, I talked about the fact that sometimes in the inpatient unit where I worked, like an intensive care unit, five or seven people would die in a single day. And I would be called upon to um, help people with their uh, moment of acute grief at the moment of passing of their loved one. And then two, with the grief that's not so acute. Afterwards, there's a grieving that needs to take place because the wound is deep. Separation is a deep wound. Uh, it's also a great opportunity, but it's a deep wound and it needs attention. We can't ignore it. So um, it was deeply gratifying work. And yes, it was sometimes um, disturbing. Uh, and uh, I would grieve with those who grieved, so to, so to say, in a different way, you know, vicariously, <laughs> you could say, but also mitigated by my experiences in meditation, my experiences in spiritual community, my experiences uh, as a practitioner of bhakti would mitigate the grief. But still, I have feelings and uh, I would have to recover. I have to, um, I found cooking was a good way to recover. Taking walks in the park and botanical gardens, good way to recover. I hope that answers your question. It does, thank you. Can you say anything about Mother Kirtida's passing? I think you were there, right? Kirtida, oh my God. What a vibrant, unforgettable soul. Yeah, I was there uh, for reasons, uh, personal reasons I had to leave just a few days before her passing, but I was there. We... Uh, uh, used to sing to her. I think the shift we did was like midnight to two in the morning, a two hour shift, we would sing to her. Uh, so there were people with her at all times. Here's what is most meaningful to say about Kirtida's passing. Um, I had tremendous regard, affection, uh, appreciation for Kirtida. So to know that she was uh, ill to the point of death was uh, not a happy thought, you know? And uh, I lived out of state. I wasn't living in Texas. I was living in Kansas and I visited with my wife at that time to spend time with her, knowing that her death was supposedly imminent. Well, we ended up staying a lot longer than we thought. We had to leave before she passed. But when we were on the threshold of seeing her, uh, knowing that she was very close to death, there was a dread. We, we dreaded seeing somebody that we loved um, in an extremity of, of um, sickness, uh, sickness unto death. And so on the threshold of the door, we, my wife and I were trying to prepare ourselves for like, oh my God, we're going to see somebody we love. And they're emaciated, skin and bones, and uh, unable to eat unable to get out of the bed, uh, just 
awaiting death. Uh, this is just going to be hard. It's just going to be so hard. So we wanted to uh, steal ourselves, if you will. We wanted to galvanize ourselves so that we would uh, um, be helpful to her. So we did what we thought would galvanize us, <laughs> uh, fortify us. And we stepped into the room and it's unforgettable. Kirti Da was like a light, like a sun shining in, in the sky, in a cloudless sky, illuminating everything. Uh, she was radiating joy, radiating confidence, radiating love in a way that was so appreciable. It was extraordinary. I, I only had that experience with one other uh, person, and that's Bhakti Tirtha Swami. Same, same experience. On the threshold, I was thinking, my wife was thinking, oh my God, this is going to be so difficult. And yet, because these people were truly advanced in spiritual life, they actually had a connection with Krishna that was unbreakable. They were not vexed. They were not unhappy. They were not crushed. They were not suffering as we imagine. Kirtida was exhibiting ecstasy of love of, of God. Bhakti Tirtha Swami was exhibiting ecstasy of love of God. And to see that we are capable, that humans are capable of being absolutely fearless at the time of death and not needy, or if, if you want to identify a need, the only need that they exhibited was the need to give to others the confidence that they were feeling, the joy that they were feeling, the love and the faith that they were feeling. That's the future of any religious practitioner who is truly sincere and um, guided properly. Sincerity and proper guidance will bring us to a state of fearlessness and a state of beatitude or ecstasy and love of God. And then death, where is thy sting? As Paul wrote. Hmm? I hope that answers. So hi, um, Haldini uh, Prabhu. Yes. Hi, um, I have a question for you. Okay. Okay. Um, so I guess my question is when talking about Krishna and ISKCON and Krishna consciousness to other people who aren't familiar with Krishna, who are Christians or in some other religion, what is the best approach to introduce um, uh, the faith that we practice? Um, I guess in a sense without uh, uh, creating skepticism or fear in, in the other person's cause I, I can um, for example, like if I bring up Krishna to a Christian, um, that person kind of seems skeptical or, or hesitant to even want to open their ears to understand, um, what that means or if it's a, a similar, I mean, I've had experiences um, like that. So I just want to know if there's like a, an approach that's graceful and that um, can ease myself into like introducing Krishna or at least like a, 
finding parallels, if that makes any sense. Does that make sense? It makes sense. It's a great question. It's a very wonderful question. And it's one that I've dealt with uh, many times, obviously, in the work of Chaplin. Uh, I, I was in Kansas in, <laughs> in an area where there were very, very few Vaishnavas practicing. <laughs> Most everybody that I dealt with was either agnostic, atheist, or Christian. Hmm. And um, one thing that I'm reminded of is something my beloved spiritual master, uh, His Holiness Tamal Krishna Goswami, shared an anecdote with us about one time he was on a plane ride and the man next to him was uh, an enthusiastic Christian who wanted to share with our spiritual master, who was appearing, you know, in Vaishnav garb, right? So he had Tilak and, you know, Dodi and, well... You know, he, he looked like a Vaishnava. He looked extraordinary. <laughs> and this man was quoting from the Bible and extolling Christ. And when my spiritual master said, um, I just listened with uh, rapt attention. And uh, I interjected at different times. Oh, that's wonderful. That's great. Thank you so much. In other words, he was teaching that sometimes it's not necessary to introduce Krishna to somebody who's not interested in Krishna per se, because they're still interested in Krishna. You know, in other words, the Gita Krishna says, people are all following his way. And whatever they, they do, their path is following him in all regards. In other words, the Christian who's adoring Christ and who's, seriously looking to live in the way that Christ exemplified and, and um, espoused, that person is, is worshiping Krishna. Mm-hmm. We should not pigeonhole Krishna into um, the form that we adore without sensitivity to the fact that that form is transcendental, so it's, it's not narrow and limited. And it appears for a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew or for a Jain or a Parsi or a Buddhist in a different form, one that we might not recognize, but again, it's the same being. So that's one answer, is it may not be necessary. Uh, And it could be um, an element of, as you put it, uh, divisiveness. Um, It could be counterproductive. On the other hand, if there's sufficient time and relationship and the person has some uh, interest, we can carefully, carefully of their feelings, careful of their feelings, we can begin to talk about what we find so meaningful in Krishna consciousness. Um, I I brought out the point that um, as a man who loves his mother, my mother is 96, his sister, um, his daughter. Um, I've been married more than once and I've loved my wives. I love my wives. What I mean to say is, to me, Krishna consciousness offered this dimension of feminine divinity that was absent from the uh, religious uh, traditions that I was familiar with otherwise. And that absence was not okay with me. <laughs> Because women have been so exploited, oppressed, and uh, maligned. So, um, 
we can share with people what has inspired us and what makes us happy in Krishna consciousness. But we should never proselytize in the sense that if a person is not asking you for Krishna, <laughs> um, give them what they need and try to recognize that they may already have Krishna as if you can simply recognize that um, who is Christ? Who is... Sorry, Krishna. Hmm? No, I'm sorry. No, no, if you... Let's be dialogical. That's where the best happens in dialogue. Hare Krishna. Oh, Hare Krishna. Yeah. Uh, but you were saying, we, continue? Well, I'm just saying, um, I think the key to uh, introducing Krishna to somebody is to be reciprocal with them and, mm. and, and give to them what you can understand is needful and helpful and to be respectful. Um, mm -hmm. Play it by ear. And yes, I know the feeling that prompts your question. I, I think I'm, I'm, conjecturing okay it's a guess but i think it's because you feel as i do that wow krishna is like the greatest revelation of god wow krishna everybody should know krishna yeah, but you have to temper that a little bit everybody should know krishna you say but do they want to <laughs> mm. and and if your attempt is premature is it going to help them get to know krishna or will it create an obstacle if you, you have to take into consideration those points, if it's going to um, offend, disturb, or alarm the person, uh, trigger their insecurities, or re-inflame their hurt and their woundedness, don't go there. It's, it's going to be counterproductive. Yes, we adore Krishna. So another thing that Tamal Krishna Goswami taught his disciples is if you become a likable person to that person by behaving in the way I just described, uh, really respecting the person, really honoring the person, really hearing and listening to the person and seeing the person, getting the person, that is a step towards their loving Krishna. Because you are a devotee of Krishna. And what does Krishna say? Those who claim to be my devotees are not my devotees. Those who say that they're devotees of my devotees, they are my devotees. So the um, lover, the devotee, the disciple, uh, the servant of the Lord is very, very dear to the Lord. So if we can endear ourselves to another by seeing that person as dear to us, that's how we build the bridge to give them Krishna. That's how we give Krishna. That's how I understand it. That's been my experience. I see. Uh, thank you so much. That was, um, that was wonderful. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for your wonderful question. It's nice to see the faces. I, I, uh, I see a number of faces. Hi, Prabhu. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank uh, you.
Thank you, Sarvabhama Prabhu. Um, thank you, um, Prabhu Tamar Krishna Maharaj. He gave an analogy so far as uh, the devotee was talking about uh, talking to the Christians. Tamar Krishna gave an analogy. He said, if we were going to Los Angeles from Dallas in an airplane and I took a vehicle, where are we going? So that always stuck with me. So <laughs> I, I, I don't, um, I know I love the Christians, but I don't waste my time arguing. But that was a very, oh, no. a very That's good um, analogy that you gave to uh, to approach that matter. You know, which yeah. I, I deal with it daily. I bought Great. a piece that of Bhagavad Gita's, and um, I just don't give them to everybody unless they're interested. But very wise. Yes, probably very very wise. So Ravana, uh introduced me to Krishna consciousness back in nineteen in the eighties. Uh, he, I found a book, Easy Journey to Other Planets, in 76. And um, Prabhupada, uh, Sarvavama Prabhupada had, had cultivated me. So I was in, I love you all, and thank you. Thank, thank you. Um, I hope to meet you all one day. Yeah, yes. Well, likewise, I share that hope. It's uh, delightful. Thank you for your comments. Uh, and I'm glad you got that wisdom, you know, wow. and that you've kept Krishna. Wow. It's For terrific. 45 years right now. <laughs> terrific. Jai. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Yeah, I was going to say, um, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you well. Thank you. Yeah. I, you know, in this age, at this present moment, so many people are dying of COVID. Sometimes we feel it's untimely and without being surrounded by friends or family members and the family members may not have the opportunity to grieve the passing mm. of, of a loved one uh, because mm. of uh, COVID. So under this mm. circumstance, and some people have had multiple um, losses. Uh, mm. How can we give solace or what, how can we help those who are under, who are suffering from this kind of, um, you know, and this in this situation now, what uh, hope can we offer them? It's a very important and very good question. So I'm going to speak extemporaneously. Um, one thought, the first thought that came to my mind is the Bhajan Anandi. So we're Ghosti Anandis. This means that we go into the field and we may even adopt the dress of and the demeanor of the persons that we wish to give to. Hmm? So that Gostianandi is very sociable preacher, teacher, mentor, mixes with the people, is not secluded, is going abroad. But you're talking about a circumstance in which there's isolation, there's um, social distancing. Here we are meeting, you know, uh, vic vicariously, right? We're all in our separate little cells, right? So about the Bhajan Anandi, we may think because Prabhupada emphasizes that ours is a Gosti Anandi tradition and there's um, 
more generosity of spirit like that. Sometimes he speaks in that way. But at other times he speaks about, and our tradition speaks about the fact, that a Bhajan Anandi, who's completely unknown to the world, tucked away in some forest or in some mountain fastness that nobody even has heard about, that person is securing the well-being of countless souls by their bhajan. In other words, we should never despair. Every time we chant Hare Krishna, every time we follow the instructions of our spiritual master as best we understand them, we're helping universally. Because help consists of pleasing Krishna. When we please Krishna by following the orders of our spiritual master, by chanting his holy names without offense, or regretting that we're still in the offensive stage and working to get past it, when we're acting in that way, we're pleasing Krishna. And when we're pleasing Krishna, the hopes, the wishes, the good things that we wish to give into the world, he delivers those things into the world despite the limitations that prevent us from doing it. That's why that came to my mind that we can't only um, value the social model where we're abroad and we're speaking to small groups or dozens or hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands. Yes, we can do that and that's wonderful. But even if we can't do that, circumstantially, we're not unable to help. That was the first answer that came to my mind. Uh, sometimes circumstances limit us. Of course, um, the model that we're using now is another way of answering. Um, we can comfort people by preaching through media like this. Um, hosting Zoom conferences, um, forming groups that get together. I think you get together every Friday. This is, people will connect. Um, it's vicarious in one sense, but it's real. It's uh, substantial. It's very meaningful. I don't know. Am I answering your question? Yes, thank you. Thank you. You're very welcome. It's a good question. One more question from, uh, from Jenya. She asks, how can we love a God that we cannot see and not love our brothers or sisters? Whom we can see, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, there's the, um, the rub, right? Uh, sometimes if we are speaking to a friend uh, in devotional service and we talk about loving Krishna, the friend may remind us that, oh, really? <laughs> uh, Lord Chaitanya famously uh, said to his followers, his intimates, if you see me exhibiting symptoms of ecstasy when I chant the holy name of God, please know it's a counterfeit, it's a fraud. Because if I had any love of God and experiencing even a moment's separation from Krishna, I would leave my body in grief, in the extremity of grief by being separate from him for a moment. I couldn't continue to live. 
So that's the standard of love of God. But every day I'm eating, I'm bathing, I'm dressing myself, I'm grooming myself. Why am I doing all these things? Because I haven't got any love of God. I'm focused on myself. So, you know, we should not mistake the variety of apparently contradictory expressions that Prabhupada makes, where on the one hand he'll say, you know, you, you should not say you have love of God. And on the other hand, he says, you can see God. You can see God uh, here, there, and everywhere. Uh, in water, we taste God. And the sun and the moon, we see God. And all forms, we see God. You know, we have to balance the different expressions and understand that they are applied as needed. <laughs> Um, we are working on loving God and when we see another person we should be able to see that person in God and God in him Krishna in him and him in Krishna Krishna in her and she and, and she in Krishna so when we see another we should be seeing Krishna that's the vision of the Uttama Adhikari the Uttama sees Krishna everywhere, in all things, in all people, at all times, in every place. Have we reached that? You know, that's, that's the meaning of Chaitanya's uh, admonishment uh, when he was instructing his intimates. Oh, it's a counterfeit. It's a fraud. If I am separate from the Lord for an instant, I would die if I had love. I don't have love. I'm seeking to have that love. I aspire to that love. But of course, that's a kind of extreme statement meant to teach us something, not to discourage us. I give up. I, I, I can't love God. I, I give up. Forget it. It's too, too high. That, that's too beyond me. No, take it as one way of understanding, and then there are other ways, and they all coalesce to give us the proper perspective and to encourage us to go forward. I hope that's a helpful answer. Yes, thank you, Bravo. That's great. Thank you. Any other questions uh, for any Shakti problem tonight from, from the audience? I love questions. <laughs> <laughs> or reflections, too. We'll take them, too. <laughs> yeah, reflections, please. I, I, I see one name here that's very funny. Harry Krishna. <laughs> I, I'd love to see a face associated with Harry Krishna, but I don't. <laughs> I, I like to one quick question. Uh, you say one God, many names. And as I was growing up as a Christian, there was one God, one complexion. And as we grow older, we, we kind of figure out, well, why is this complexity like this? Um, and we have no understanding for it and they don't tell us anything for it. So whereas in Krishna, I, I can understand that somewhat and see. My other question is, where can I get some more knowledge and information 
of that? Uh, of the variegatedness of God's um, appearances. Um, I, I'm thinking that that's your question. Am I correct that you're yes, asking? Yes, where yes. can you? Okay. Um, mm -hmm. Prabhupada's books are the uh, Transcendental Treasure Trove, TTT, Transcendental Treasure Trove. TTT, uh, okay. Yeah, everything that you will desire uh, will come about by always relating to the literature that Prabhupada has given. Prabhupada is the um, representative of Lord Chaitanya. He carries the teachings of Lord Chaitanya. And Lord Chaitanya gives the postgraduate teachings. So by reading okay. Prabhupada's books, you're being, becoming acquainted with the highest knowledge. And okay. that will also connect you with other knowledge. I, I, you know, the thing is that we don't want to be exclusivistic. Although, like um, in marriage, you know, um, we may love all people but we're, we have fidelity to our marriage partner. This is a requisite of uh, love. So we may have this exclusive devotion to Krishna personally, but at the same time, we want to appreciate that Krishna appears in many forms to many people. And that me, in other words, what I'm getting at here is it, that they read Prabhupada's books as the basis for the thing you're thirsting and hungering for. That doesn't mean don't read the Quran, don't read the Bible, don't read the newspaper, don't read a Harry Potter series. I mean, it doesn't mean that. Sure. It, it, just, it just means that don't fail to take advantage of the treasure trove of transcendence that Prabhupada has given. He was called to do this um, it, it was anticipated that he would come and spread Krishna consciousness throughout the whole world. And Prabhupada himself said that his books were dictated to him by Krishna. So when you're reading Prabhupada's books, you're associating closely with Krishna. You're worshiping Krishna with your intelligence. Mm -hmm. And Krishna is informing you of everything needful. And don't feel that you shouldn't read other things. We want to uh, be knowledgeable and conversant, and we don't have to fear uh, that if I'm reading Harry Potter or if I'm reading, I don't know, Shakespeare, it's going to contaminate me. And I'll lose my Krishna consciousness. <laughs> That's just silly. It'll enrich your ability to appreciate Shakespeare or Jalaluddin Rumi, or whomever it is. I hope that's a good answer. I hope it touches on your question. <laughs>